Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to be together and to discuss leadership. Uh, we pray that your presence would be with us, give us your wisdom and guidance. And we thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, today we're going to be talking about leadership foundations. Actually, leadership and ministry is our title for our entire day. Thank you so much. And uh, this morning, I'd like to talk about leadership foundations. And just to introduce, let me talk to you a little bit about OCI, which is the organization I work for. Some of you know about it, but it's a um, organization that supports supporting ministries, that nurtures supporting ministries. We have 120 uh, members in 44 different countries. And as Michelle said earlier, I sit on a lot of different boards, um, more boards than I would care to count, actually. And being on those boards has given me a lot of windows into different leadership situations. Um, some of those leadership situations have been good. Some of those have been not so good. And so what I'd like to try to do in our time together today, both this morning and this afternoon, is share some lessons that I've learned in relation to leadership. But since we have such an intimate group this morning, I'd also like to make this very practical for you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go through a number of issues this morning, and then I'd like to get some questions from you. There may be issues in leadership that you particularly want to discuss. So for example, this morning, our first thing I was talking about leadership foundations. Uh, what is the foundation for good leadership, which really is a knowledge of self. There's a lot of leadership books out there, a huge number of leadership books, especially recently. You, you could drown by surfing the internet on leadership things, but it's a very booming business, and there's a great need for it, as we'll see momentarily. But a lot of the leadership presentations focus on how to do certain things. And that's important. There's a practical aspect of leadership. But I really want to start our presentation not focusing on how to do certain things, but on how to be a leader, the personal qualities of leadership, which I think are really essential. And let's think for a little bit. I've called this slide the American Leadership Crisis. And whatever your political stance might be, it's okay with me, but it's really clear that both presidential candidates are disliked by the vast majority of people in America or not trusted by them. Now, that's a, an amazing situation where both candidates have these very low approval ratings. Now, if you think back to the founding of our country, I'm reading an autobiography, not an autobiography, a biography on Thomas Jefferson right now. And if you think back to the founding of our country, there was about 3 million people in the United States at that time, 3 million Europeans, not counting Native Americans. And yet, think of the number of world-class leaders that arose at that time. Okay, so you have individuals, again, like Thomas Jefferson, like Benjamin Franklin. We may not agree with their morality of their life, but to be able to think of how to create an entire government, James Madison, John Adams, George Washington, um, Alexander Hamilton, Monroe, just numerous individuals that you could just kind of rattle off there out of a population of 3 million. So 
give me the top 10 leaders in the United States right now that you really respect and think have real leadership skills. Ben Carson. Ben Carson, okay, you got one. And I, we could have a conversation about that, but all right. So Ben Carson. But really there's very few, you know, out of a country of 300 million, there's very few really what we would call world-class leaders. That's really scary. And so not only is there a leadership crisis in uh, the United States, but let's think for momentarily about England. You know, the recent Brexit vote where David Cameron, who was the prime minister, said, okay, well, let's do this vote. And he really did it as a political ploy to, you know, quelch or squelch the opposition, not thinking that it would pass. And then the opposition leader, Johnson, was like, yeah, yeah, let's do this, let's do this. And then he's like, oh, no, man, what am I going to do? I, I didn't want this either. So, you know, the whole history of the country, and it'll be, um, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds with Great Britain. But again, you know, where are the world-class leaders? And then we can just think of our local church levels or, you know, a handful of good pastors or good conference administration. There's really a dearth of leadership, and it's important for us to think through, um, welcome, to think through what would help this, help remedy this issue of a lack of good leadership. Good morning. Um, so, uh, here's a definition of leadership, which I like, except for one thing. Notice there's a leadership definition, and there's lots of them around here, but this is kind of helpful. It says, a leader knows what to do, knows why that's important, and knows how to gather resources to accomplish the task. And so that brings a lot of components together. They know what to do, why it's important, and then how to gather the resources, which would clearly be the team, the people, the finances, whatever is necessary to accomplish the task. And so this is an important component or an important aspect of leadership. I use this definition a lot, but there's something missing out of this definition. What would you say is missing here? Now, it's got a lot of good points. Knows what to do. He's got vision. What? Yeah, the spiritual or the ethical or the moral component of leadership. That's really true. So I use an acronym. Oops. Okay, that marker doesn't work. Um, I use an acronym in a lot of my leadership classes called ACE, uh, from the idea of a flying a pilot ACE or somebody that's really good at something, to talk about three aspects of leadership. There's the aspirations, that would be the vision, the leader knows what's to do, what to do. Then there's the competency, that would be the C under this acronym ACE. So there's aspiration, vision, goal, direction, but then there's the competency, there's the skill set that's necessary. And most leadership talks really focus on these two things, the aspirations and the competencies. But there's an ethical or moral or spiritual dimension of leadership. So for example, we could take this definition, knows what to do, why it's important, and how to gather the resources, and we could apply that to, um, we could apply that to, say, Adolf Hitler, for example, or Idi Amin, or, or your least favorite political character, anybody that 
you know, knowing what to do, why it's important for them at least, and then how to accomplish it. But it's important for us as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians living at the end of time, that we don't lose the ethical component of leadership. And that's really what I want to drill down on as our leadership foundation for this first section this morning um, is this important aspect here. Okay. And so again, in our first section, we're going to be talking not so much on how to do certain things, but on how to be the leader. And again, we're a nice intimate group. If you have any questions, feel free to raise your hand. This is a chart. Uh, next slide here is a chart. It's a title chart. And um, I like to be on water. I like to canoe and kayak, different things. In fact, my family, my daughter and myself and her husband just took a seven-day trip in the Alaskan wilderness where we, it was totally fantastic. And we were paddling. And so this is a little different chart. You know, it shows depth of water and it's got currents on it. It would be for a larger craft than a canoe or a kayak. But if you were using this chart to navigate, what would be the most important thing to know about it? Depth of the water. Okay, depth of the water. Depth of the water is really important. What else? Weather, weather is important. Reference points or landmarks. Okay, landmarks, how to understand what the landmarks are, very important. The most important thing is where you are on this, okay? Because if you are over here and you think you're over there, you're gonna be making decisions that are inaccurate about the depth and your landmarks and everything else. Now your landmarks might help you know where you are. But the most important thing is where are you? So if you're out at sea, you want to know where you are so that you would avoid any dangers to your ship, any submerged rocks or anything like that. It's very important. So it's also very important for us as leaders to know where we are in our leadership growth. That's really the most important thing is knowing where we are. Who are we? What are our strengths in leadership? What are our weaknesses in leadership? And in order to help us gather that uh, knowledge, it's important for us to really learn to have an inquisitive mind, to learn to ask questions. A friend of mine shared that if you ask profound quest quick questions, you get profound answers. You ask simple questions, you get simple answers. If you get ask no questions, you get no answers. And so, you know, to have this learning mindset is very important. Welcome. Um, and so one of the most important things for us, of course, is the statement of the true witness in uh, Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says to the angel of the church of Laodicea, you think one thing, but what? You are. you are something else, and the danger there is that you know not your situation. 
And so this is really important. In Gospel Workers on page 14, Ellen White specifically brings out this idea that Jesus is speaking to the, the angel represents the leadership of the church. Um, so we can take that to ourselves as well. If we have any leadership role in an organization or in church, this is for us. The true witness clearly says, you think one thing about yourself, but you don't know something else. You think this, 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 this. You think you're rich, you think you're clothed, you think you can see, but you really do not know that you are poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. Could that really be applying to us? Or do we think we know? You know, this is one of the greatest weaknesses in leadership. This is one of the greatest dangers that I've encountered in, in myself and in working with other people in leadership is the surrounding ourselves, protecting ourselves, so that we really don't see what's going on. And this really is part of the leadership foundation, is that we need to know. And Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, tell us something about the heart of mankind. What does it say there? You must have that memorized. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. Yes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? Okay, now, but there's a good, there's a remedy in verse 10. I'm I the Lord, I'm the one that searches the hearts and tries the reins. But the truth of the matter is our hearts are desperately wicked. Now, when we talk about decision making, it's important that we realize this negative aspect here about our hearts. We have this idea generally, or I've met a lot of people that have this idea, that when I become a Christian, all that's taken care of. I'm kind of converted, and I don't have all these things that everybody else has to deal with. I'm sorry, that's not true. You said it uh, right. I think I've converted. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that may be the issue, right? Where my conversion reaches to a certain level. Uh, again, I remember just before I was baptized, I knew that there were certain things I needed to stop doing. I needed to stop fornicating with my girlfriend. There was a few things I knew I needed to stop doing. And so once I had those finished, I thought, hey, good, this is good. I'm all set. You know, the heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. And in our continued walk with Christ, there should be a continuing deepening of repentance that the closer we become to Christ, you know, there's another layer revealed of what our heart is. And Christ continually wants to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, again, I just want to stress this. One of the classes that I teach in different aspects is how our personal biases negatively impact our judgments. Um, so just really quickly, for example, if you spend a lot of time or effort in something, you're invested in it. And because you're invested in it, you're going to continue to throw resources into it, even if it doesn't make sense to do that. But there's a very strong pull to do this. And there was an organization I work with. Um, I've been on the board for a long time. And I was invested in the leader. Very personal, had a close personal relationship with the leader. 
and had invested a lot of time into the leader and financial resources into the leader. And it really came about that the leader needed to leave the organization. And I was blinded by my own biases. Now, I teach this all over the place. And yet, it's one thing to know things intellectually. It's another thing to put them into practice. And Jesus says, you don't know your condition. So it's important for us to constantly be learning, to constantly be growing. And as a leader, self-examination is really um, important. That should be Psalm 139, not 138, excuse me. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, you know, search me, O God, try me, know my heart, my thoughts. Here are a number of Bible verses for you. 1 Corinthians 11:28, in relation to the Lord's Supper, where we're talking us about examining ourselves. Psalm 26, 2, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, all verses encouraging self-examination. And as leaders, we have a difficulty in doing this. The more successful a leader becomes, the more protected they are in certain ways from criticism. And there's a variety of reasons that, that support that. We, um, people want, don't want to tell us bad news. Uh, certain people want to protect us from things. Sometimes we're unapproachable, as we'll see later. But it's essential, continually throughout our leadership growth, that we be learners, that we engage in self-examination. Not superficially, but deep self-examination. Yes? So isn't that the requirement for choosing your, your surrounding team, that they aren't followers, but they are balancers? That's a, that's a good question. You know, in, in creating a team, we certainly don't want followers. Um, and there's a man, his name is Roberto, I forgot his first name. He teaches at the Wharton School of Business, and he's written a book. And the title of the book is Why, Why Good Leaders Don't Take Yes for an Answer. Why Good Leaders Don't Take Yes for an Answer. And his whole thought there is it's very important for a leader to foster an atmosphere where there is constructive debate and constructive criticism, where the, the leadership team is willing and anxious to to fight against, you know, to push back against the leader. And there's, there's things a leader can do to foster that and to inhibit it. Yes? Do you, do you want any discussion? Can I yeah, sure. Go ahead. I, uh, I, I was here, what, 25 years ago? Okay. Elder Prezee was still alive. Mm -hmm. He was, was almost as he was a saint. And, and he was. He was just a godly man. But when I came in, I'm brand new, right out of the conference, just came back from the mission field, and I raised a question here in prayer meeting one night, and it just about shattered to think that I would even question. Yeah. Uh, and that. Uh, so that's a that's an interesting illustration of an individual who obviously was very committed, Elder Frizee. I'm not criticizing him in any way, but right. I had a question. And it was as if nobody would question it. Right. And I, I, and I've talked with him many times. I, I'm nothing wrong with a man. I wish I was half the same he was. But I'm just saying that that, that atmosphere bothered me, that nobody would question. question. 
And that, that's an unfortunate thing, and it can be particularly unfortunate in institutions. Uh, organizations, it doesn't have to be institutions, it could be organizations where the person in charge has, is, is respected, and rightly so, for different things. But when respect slides into veneration, that is a bad situation. You know, we can respect people, but to kind of venerate them and kind of lifting them up to something, that's a dangerous circumstance. Yes. And I think, too, when a person is being used of the Lord, and like if he was willing, that let's say, and generally that does a pattern, then let's say something comes up in our mind that we think contrary to that, we think, well, who am I to think that? You know what I mean? Like, this person is well-trusted and a real Christian much more than I am, so then we discount our personal experience and fail to see the reins are both in, in terms of God leading his people through leadership, but at the same time, too, we have a personal responsibility and be willing to be secure in our own relationship with the Lord to you know, express those things. Now, that aspect that you bring out is, is really vital. Um, it's for a little bit later on, but let's just pick up on it right now as well. The tendency to question our own perspective when, when we're going against a well-respected leader and to discount that is very dangerous in an organization. Um, let me give you an, an illustration. Sure, so let me give you, let me, let me, let me give an illustration, very um, recent illustration, quote, quote, recent, not so recent. Uh, recently, there was the, what is it, 30th anniversary of the Challenger explosion. So remember, the Challenger was going up and it exploded and had the school teacher from New Hampshire on it. So before the Challenger loss, uh, excuse me, before the launch of the Challenger, there were engineers that were communicating that they didn't think the shuttle should be launched because they were concerned about the O-rings and the temperature. And if the temperature was too cold, the O-rings would crack and, and there would be a disaster. The system in NASA was such that these engineers who were kind of on a lower level, maybe the way somebody would be in a ministry, like if so for at Wildwood and you had Elder Frizee, not to impugn him, not intentionally, but you know, if you're just a regular worker, then there's this gap. And so these engineers tried to voice their concern. They were shut down. They weren't heard. And because they weren't heard, uh, then they began to say, okay, well, maybe we should stop sticking our head up because every time you do, you get chopped off. Or they began to doubt their own, their own uh, accuracy. Now, recently, NPR interviewed, do you hear that? Recently, NPR interviewed one of the engineers who had been saying, this is dangerous, we shouldn't do this. And he has been bearing guilt all these years because he's like, oh, I just wish I had spoken out louder. And really, for all these years, has been carrying this load on his shoulders of sensing it was going to be a disaster, trying to vocalize, verbalize it, and then being shut down, and then not verbalizing it, and then there is a disaster. Well, about a week after that aired, one of the managers in Nassau contacted NPR said, I need to respond to this. And on air, the manager said, that guy is not responsible. It was us. There was no system in place. There was no way we would have listened to him. There was a problem in the culture of the organization that 
that created this idea of discounting, you know, individuals discounting their own ideas if the leadership was going a certain way. So the point there is it's important for leaders, for us, to create an environment in which people can question, in which the leader can get feedback. No? Certainly think of a lot of examples. You Lots. Think huh? of Davenport and Paris Pine Mills. You can think of the water pollution in Detroit or wherever it is. Yeah. So all those illustrations are very important point. Yeah, all over the place. You get government in Detroit and different organizations, church and non-church. It's systemic. So what, what should that engineer have done? What are you saying? Okay, well, I don't know that there was more the engineer could have done. Maybe he could have gone to the newspaper the day before or something. You, you, but we're in a church system here. Correct. We're in a church and system. You don't, or even here at Wildwood, when it's constituency time, when it's in the... I've been two constituencies in the denomination, one in mission, and you don't, you don't throw things out on the table when they're discussing. They don't want it. Okay, so the question... I guess is how, there's two questions really. How does the leader create an environment in which that kind of dialogue can come to fruition? And how can I, if I'm in an organization where that environment doesn't exist, how can I foster it? How can I handle that kind of lack of environment? Those are good questions. Bill? Well, I'm thinking of a biblical example. If you're a watchman on the walls of Zion and you blow the trumpet, you're clear. Yeah, right. And if you get shut down, well, that's somebody else's problem. I blew the trumpet. If you don't pay attention, that's not my problem. Yeah. So now, back to the Nassau situation. You know, the engineer tried and tried, and they had meetings, and, and perhaps there were certain things he could have done. Excuse me for a second. Let me continue, okay? You know, there were, perhaps there were issues that the engineer could have done at that point to be more verbal. You and I need to realize something, though. There is an, an immense dynamic that takes place when people are get together. When you're in a committee meeting, like you talked about constituency, you know how awkward it is to say something, or if I disagree, should I really say it? I mean, you know, it's Wilbur, it's 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 Pastor Grabener, it's you know, who I'm going to disagree with that. There's a tremendous social dynamic that takes place. The heart is deceitful desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, praise the Lord. The Lord's there, and he searches the reins and tries the hearts. But we need to be aware of some of these things and then put in place processes that take time to create this atmosphere of openness so that if there's an issue with constituency, we're comfortable. Now, that doesn't happen overnight. But it's Some personalities, you I don't see as a quiet person. I think you express yourself well. You, you even held me within check right here just a second ago. That's good leadership. Some of us are very easy to speak, <laughs> and we speak without the Holy Spirit telling us to. No, some, that's a different problem, yes. Yeah, <laughs> there's some that are so quiet, so in, that when the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to speak, they don't speak. Yep. And, and, and so what we're going to do when we're finished this, we'll talk about boards, okay? Boards. boards and, and some of this will translate to committees and things. And so let's hold some of this conversation till then. But this is great. This is really good conversation. 
I don't think we read this, volume five of the testimonies, page 333. Easy to remember. As Christians, we are less thorough in self-examination than anything else. It is no wonder then that we make such slow advancement in what? Understanding self. Okay? Understanding self is a foundation of Christian leadership. This is vital for us. And as I go back to our original definition, a leader knows what to do, why it's important, how to bring the resources. But for a Christian leader, there needs to be the ethical component engaged in that. And so for us as Christian leaders, an understanding of self, knowing ourself, that's our problem according to the true witness, but there's a remedy to it. There's the work of the Holy Spirit, and then there's our cooperation. Notice this next quotation. We should study the experience of, the, of past life just as we study the proof sheets of an article to find the errors and note them on the margin of the page. And so she's using a metaphor or analogy of if you're writing a book or you're preparing an article, and she obviously did this a lot, Ellen White did, where the proof sheets would come in and she would reread them and she would say, oh, I want to say this differently. She would look at them and she would make margins, notes in the margins of the page to correct them or as an as a editor would. Um, and really, you know, it's an amazing work. Uh, I had published a book a couple of years ago and my text editor was fantastic. I mean, I read through it, read through it, read through it, and he read through it. Oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. After it came out printed, there's still mistakes in it. So there's always room to learn. But we should do this with our lives. Look at our life and note where something was wrong. Notice, um, we should do this daily and note our faults so that we may avoid them in the future. Signs of the Times, February 10, 1890. So reviewing our life, taking the time for self-examination every day to think back what we did, how we interacted, recognizing our areas, and then saying, okay, my life needs to change here. I need the grace of God to help me. Or, or what can I do? Did I need to get more exercise? Is that why I lost my temper? Did I eat too much for breakfast? Um, whatever the circumstance might be. Now, what are some uh, traps? Why do leaders come into the situation where they, they enter into this kind of a circumstance or the surrounding where they become protective? Well, there's lots of traps that leadership can fall into. First of all is lack of feedback. And when I call this, I call this pseudo-accountability or fake accountability. Too often boards really don't act in an accountable way or don't hold the leader accountable. Executive committees oftentimes don't push back against the leader. Your spouses or your close friends, sometimes people really just don't want to say the truth to you. That's really dangerous. A leader needs good feedback, needs openness, and uh, you know, you can look at an organization and you can look at the way the leader interacts with people and you could say, well, who is the person that could really tell this leader that he's right or wrong? So a good friend of mine, Frank Fournier, he's our vice president at OCI. And again, because we work with a lot of leaders, we see all these things coming up 
And whenever we see an issue, I invariably will tell Frank, now Frank, when I make that mistake, you need to tell me. You know, I'm giving you permission, you need to tell me if I'm doing that. Amen. And um, I do the same thing with Craig Harding, who's my vice president for development. So it's, it's important. Uh, that's a person, I thank you for the compliment of maturity, that's a person who doesn't want to go through what I've seen other leaders go through. It's probably really self-preservation. You know, I've seen lots of leaders come to their board meeting and bam, everything explodes and they get kicked out. I'm like, I don't want, ever want that to happen. <laughs> I want people to tell me ahead of time. Yes. My wife, uh, she's pretty good at telling me things, yes. It's a little bit more sensitive there, but. So you're saying for them to say that in the areas that you know you have your weakness? Or areas I don't see. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, I, I see lots of situations. And so it's like, hey, don't let us do that to each other. We need to have people. Um, I can think of an organization that uh, there was a leadership change, and the leader had uh, been in the organization for a, a while, and it was time for a change. It would have been, from my perspective, helpful if the leader had been more gracious in the change and wasn't so gracious. And I, that's why I told Frank, I said, don't, don't let me do one of those things. Pull me aside, hit me in the head with a banjo or whatever you need to do. Yes? It seems like a lot of times, if we're really keeping up with our accountability, that this leader would know, it wouldn't come like just pulling the rug out from under him, but he right. would kind of know right. what's happening. Do you think so? Another uh, area is insecurity. So leaders are oftentimes insecure. And that comes out in our relations with one another. How I do this with new leaders as I'm traveling, I ask them honestly, you know, how are things with you and with Christ? What's really going on in your life? Uh, usually our tendency is to defend ourselves, where really we should be craving counsel. But our tendency is to defend ourselves. Another leadership trap is leaders become very busy. Coffee is not the only addictive substance in the world, you know. There's an adrenaline rush of putting out fires, of managing crisis. And I know certain leaders that do that. That's their style. They don't plan very well, but they manage crisis. And uh, they have crisis because they don't plan very well. But part of it is, you know, they become very addicted or, oh good, I solved that. It raises your feeling of importance. It, you know, you like the pressure, and when the pressure's off, it's like, oh, now what do I do? Um, that's a poor leadership style. So these are some leadership traps. Sometimes a leader can't find feedback. Sometimes they're insecure. There's nobody to speak to them. Sometimes they're too busy. On the other hand, there are some personal barriers to leadership getting good feedback or, or making some mistakes. And one of them is sensuality. And when I say sensuality, there's lots of ways that can be, um, can play out. There can be inappropriate relationships with members of the opposite sex, um, inappropriate relationships that are either physical or just emotional. They don't have to be physical, they could just be emotionally inappropriate relationships. There could be sensuality, it could be a wrong use of food. 
you know, certain foods could be an issue. And then, of course, sexual activity or pornography on the internet, sexual escapism. Uh, you know, I forgot the statistic. Bill, maybe you would know, but it was like 60% of all ministers, 50% of all ministers are engaged in pornography, you know. So it's a huge number, it's a huge number, or all males, maybe it's males, maybe it's not ministers, maybe ministers is 40%, but they're huge numbers. And, um, and so this is a prevalent issue, and we are deceived if we think it doesn't happen in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, or if we think it doesn't happen in ministries, it does. And so there's questions. And so it's important for leaders not to be isolated. Another personal barrier that leaders interact with or come with is tiredness. Now, this could be a physical tiredness, you know, physical fatigue through uh, poor health, you know, low iron issues or stress. There could be different reasons people are tired, but there also can become a tiredness in relation to spiritual disciplines. When I talk about spiritual disciplines, I'm not talking about the emerging church, but I'm talking about healthy spiritual disciplines, memorization of scripture, prayer, study, um, taking time alone to think, reflection, meditation, biblical meditation, of course. But we can become tired, and I'll give you a, a honest example. I have on my phone an app called Scripture Typer which is a Bible memorization app. And I've got certain goals that I've been working on, on memorizing. And I bet right now, so I haven't done this, okay, this will be like a really transparent moment. Let's see here, I'm gonna find my phone. Where is my scripture typer app? Isn't that discouraging? I don't even remember where it is anymore. How long has it been since I've opened it? There it is, sorry. So right now, I've got 165 verses that I'm, that I'm past due in reviewing. That's simply because I've been too busy and tired that my normal time for reviewing scripture, uh, memorization, I haven't done. Now, I'm not saying I don't remember them anymore, but they come up automatically for review, and so I'm way behind. Publicly shaming myself like this might help me to do it. But sometimes leaders get tired, and they get physically tired, they get emotionally tired, they get tired from stress, and then their spiritual life begins to decline. And they begin stopping to pray, and to read scripture, and to engage in important spiritual disciplines. Another thing that's a personal barrier for leaders is the abundance that leaders have. And when I talk about this abundance, I'm not talking about monetary, monetary issues, but I'm talking about ministry opportunities. Sometimes there's so many things a leader can do. Can travel, can speak here, there's so many things to study, there's so many sermon resources, that there's no time in the leader's life for heart work, which is really important. There's no time in the leader's life for the Holy Spirit to get to the person's heart and begin to really transform them. That's, that's vitally important. So these are some barriers, these are concerns for us. The good news is, God has a way of correcting these. And you know what the way is? Trials and obstacles are God's chosen methods of discipline and his pointed condition of success. So God's intention is to bring 
tests to us in leadership, tests in the daily life. And those tests are designed by God's providence. They're designed by God to help the Christian, to help the Christian leader realize the danger that he or she is in. Tests. Now, none of us really like tests, particularly when those tests come in the form of difficult people or ministry disasters or conflict or apparent failure. But those tests are important. Christ Object Lessons, page 283. It says, God's great object in the working out of his providence is, is to try men to give them opportunity to develop character. And that's just a fantastic sentence. God's great object in the working out of his providence is to try to test us. For what purpose? To give us an opportunity to develop character. That's what it's really all about. Character, heart work. It was heart work with Christ. It needs to be heart work with us as well. And so God will bring into the leader's life all kinds of circumstances to wake them up, to shake them out of their lethargy or their insensibility, to help them see how they're protecting themselves, to help them see what needs to happen in their institution. And so all these tests, and this is really probably, you remember anything else, all the providential tests that come to us are God's tools to mold our hearts. And if leaders would understand that, if I would understand it, it would help with the frustration level we often feel. It's like, okay, what am I need to learning in this circumstance? Now, it's not going to take away all the necessity for thinking and planning, and it's not going to remove all the emotional um, triggering that happens in our body, but it's really important for us. Another reference here. It's the little things, quote, unquote, that discipline the soul. What disciplines us? Yeah, it's the little things. Sorry. Years ago, when I was working at uh, Riverside Farm and I was the director there, we had a building in the town, and that's where we would go to get internet. Back in those days, when I first moved to Zambia in 96, to use the internet was a major ordeal. Remember that dial-up in, 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 you don't even know what dial-up is, right? Um, so yeah, maybe you do. Um, so had dial-up in Zambia, where the phone line was horrendous. And I remember like going into the office in town, and you'd spend an hour and a half trying to connect. And then you'd be like, oh, OK, I'm just going to go home. But there's that whole sunk cost investment thing. It's like, well, I just spent an hour and a half. I should spend another five minutes, you know, and then the other five minutes goes to another hour and a half. Well, one day, this room needed cleaning. And we had a young student missionary worker at our campus. And I said, hey, would you go clean the room down there? He got offended. He felt he was more important than going and cleaning the room. He was, he was in Africa. He wasn't African. He was American. And he was like, what? What's this? You're, you, it was a very interesting dialogue. Um, I said, hey, the room needs cleaning. Go clean it. Uh, unfortunately, 
he didn't. And more unfortunately, his life took a very negative turn. He ended up divorcing his wife and has gone off. Um, he's walked away from Christ, a whole host of things. And I'm not making a direct connection between his refusal to clean the room and what happened to him later in life. But it's important for us to realize that it's the little things that discipline the soul. It's really the small things. Excuse me. The, the, the story of David, he did the little things. Yeah, David being faithful. That's right. The little things that discipline the soul and prepare men to act with lowly mindedness under large responsibilities. So this is really you know, vitally important for us. It is because these little things, the little things are not always seen and linked with those of the higher interest that so many professed Christians fail. Wow. Many Christian leaders fail because they ignore the little things in life. They become too great in their own estimation. They're too wise in their own eyes. They haven't learned the importance of taking care of little things. Yeah. Yeah, I think it also can reflect on wrong decisions made by others where it says, lay no man, lay hands upon no man suddenly. Okay. A lot of times we look at someone, oh, well, wow, you know, but they haven't gone through maybe a discipline of life. When we put somebody in, into that position that hasn't seen the importance of that, and then we have problems as a result. Yeah, good. Very good. That's Signs of the Times, October 27, 1898. Um, let's see. Okay, let's look at a couple more quotes and then we're going to take a quick break. The most convincing testimony that we can bear to others that we have the truth is the spirit which attends the advocacy of that truth. That's really a key thought as well. The most in convincing testimony that we have the truth is not our ability to give a Bible study on the 2300 days or the state of the dead, as important as those are, but it's the spirit with which we communicate the truth. She continues, if it sanctifies the heart of the receiver, if it makes him gentle and Christ-like, then he will give some evidence of the fact that he has the genuine truth. So that's 1888 materials, page 632. 1888 materials, page 632. So again, all these in relation to leadership. The ethical component of leadership is very important. Now, I want to close this section with um, something that happens in leadership. We know that God is the one that calls us into leadership. He gives us direction. He gives us passion. He gives us perseverance. Um, and he wants us to use our gifts. Oftentimes, what happens to people, not just in leadership positions, but it can happen to people working in an organization, sometimes they enter into what I'm calling a fog. Now, if you have a very nice car, I'm a little outdated in my nice cars these days, but you know, back in my day, get a 66 Corvette or something like that. It would have been a very nice car. But if you have a foggy road, the power of that car is virtually neutralized by the fog. And leaders or people working in organizations sometimes enter into a fog, an emotional directional fog. 
Remember what I said in the very beginning, a leader knows what to do and why it's important to do it. Sometimes we get into a part of our lives where we're really not clear why we're doing what we're doing. We feel like we're in a fog. Uh, remember, uh, my son Jeremy went to school at Fountain View, and many years ago he was giving a talk, and as he was giving a talk, the fog rolled down the mountain, and you couldn't even see the buildings next door. And that sometimes happens to us. We just feel like, oh, I don't know where I'm doing, what I'm going, where I'm going, what's happening. When leaders are in that kind of a fog, then they began to get fatigued, emotionally fatigued. The work seems harder. There's no pleasure in it any longer. They don't derive any satisfaction from it. That fatigue then leads to flirtation. And I'm not talking about the flirtation between men and women, although that may be part of it. I'm talking about a flirtation that happens when the leader or the worker begins to think, I need to go someplace else. What else could I be doing? I have had this experience happen to me. There's a point um, several years ago where I was working with a different particular person, and it just was a difficult working environment. And I was just in this fog. And as I got into this fog, my energy level for the job was dissipating. And everybody around me could see it. It's like, man, you know. The fog is not necessarily a blind spot. Not necessarily, just, I just, I don't know what's going on. My direction isn't clear, okay? My direction isn't clear. I'm not really sure what the road has for me. Then you get fatigued, then you begin thinking, well, maybe I should take this other job. Maybe I should move someplace else. Um, you know, maybe I should be thinking of something else. We begin to flirt mentally with other calls or other places and things that we should do. It, sometimes it's important for a leader to move, but not necessarily, excuse me, in this situation. I asked the Lord to never move me when I was in denominational work, when I was on the downside. Yeah, good point. Never asked to be moved on the downside. Yeah. Uh, good, actually, a good friend of mine was president of an organization, they were on the downside, and he was going to submit his resignation. I was like, you can't do that. Wait till it goes up, then you can leave. And he stuck with it, and then the organization came back up, and then he moved on. But good. Sometimes, sometimes we've created the downside, and they kick us out. Um, but we shouldn't just want to get out because of that. Um, but instead of fog, what we need is focus. And this is really important. Focus in life is essential for a leader. What am I doing and why is it important? Where is my ministry going? What's the vision for my ministry? If you have focus, even in your little area or at the head of an organization, then you become energized. Things are not quite so difficult. Now, what I encourage leaders to do when they're in this kind of a box here, fog, fatigue, and thinking, well, what should I do? How am I going to move? I encourage them to think of certain things that they have done well at. You know, make a little list. What are some things you've done well at? Because confidence is a byproduct of predictability. Confidence is a byproduct of predictability. So, for example, if you have a knee surgery or, you know, you hurt yourself, um, you hurt your arm or something, then your body's going to kind of protect it. 
when it's healed, then you regain your confidence because you know it's predictable. You know you're not going to fall. And there are certain things that you are good at, whatever your sphere is. You've communicated, you're a pastor, you're a leader. You're good at certain things. If we think about what we're good at, that helps increase our confidence, gives us focus in the organization. When we have focus, focus obviously then we're not fatigued any longer, but we feel fresh. We have energy once again. And so focus is, is very important. We're going to talk a little bit about this more as we go through. And then, of course, instead of flirting with different ideas, we would remain faithful. So if you ever meet somebody that just feels like, oh, maybe I should be leaving, or they're tired, ask them if things are clear to them, what their direction is, what their main task is. If it's not, you've diagnosed part of the problem for them. That, okay, you're, you've lost your focus. How do we get it back? How do we get it back? Well, let me give a couple of examples here. In our life, there are several key areas of our life. So here's, what is that, seven? So there's our family life, you know, my relationships with, with um, siblings or parents or children or spouses. There's my family life. There's my financial life. How am I doing financially? There's how am I doing physically, my health. There's my social life, my interconnection with friends. There's my professional life, professional whether it's in a ministry or pastoring or banking or leadership, whatever it is. How am I doing spiritually? And how am I doing personally? These are seven areas of life. And it's important to ask ourselves, do I have focus for each one of those seven areas? What are things that are important to me in each one of these seven areas? Now, I encourage people, let me back up for a second. I have seen many places where leaders in ministry do not keep these seven in balance, where something is imbalanced. Either their family suffers, or their physical health suffers, or their spirituality suffers, or their professionalism suffers, their finances suffer, social aspects suffer, because they don't keep life in balance. If you are not intentional about keeping your life in balance, it will not be in balance. I can guarantee you that. And so I recommend once a year for people to think or to think about life balance in these three categories. Once a year, take time and think, okay, what are the major things that, that I need to think about this year on my family for this year. Sure, no problem. Um, can I think about my balance once a month, once a month, excuse me, once a week? How do I review things so that I keep my entire life in balance? Now, sometimes our life is a little bit like a rubber band. And when I say that, I mean, sometimes we're stretched. But if you don't break the rubber band, what happens? You know, it comes back to its normal stage. And so there are times in our life where things are out of balance for a little bit, but then we bring them back into balance. The danger is when we're continually out of balance and the band keeps stretching until it snaps. And this happens in leadership all over the place. 
Part of the reason it happens is because the leader carries too much on themselves. You know, everything's going to collapse without me. Well, that's really not true. And if it is true, then you need to think through your organization. Um, uh, so it's important for us to review these things. Okay, we've been here for almost a full hour. We're supposed to stop in 50 minutes. So I've already gone over a little bit. Any quick questions, just as we draw to a close on kind of what we laid out in terms of foundations? Yes. Uh, back at, let's see, uh, what you do to form together. You're, you're, you're gathering your team together, right? Mm-hmm. And this culture of, um, of examination. OK, when we talk about, let's wait till we talk about teams when we go to the boards. Well, this, or, is, this is about, you know, it might be, but this is about selecting your, your support group, your, your okay. inner, inner team. And so there are certain uh, characteristics that you want to qualify them to have. That's the point. In other words, I can examine myself and understand what I need to do, right? Mm-hmm. The balance I need. Now I'm examining, oh, that might be the wrong word, but looking at these characteristics in the others that I'm asking to join the team. And so there's a mechanism by which you can do that. That's the question. So leaders, as they're working with their team members, are going to learn, if the leader is astute, the leader is going to learn pretty quickly what some of the weaknesses are of his team members. This is in their selection before they become part of the team. Okay, so. What you could do is you would talk to individuals who uh, have had experience with them in the past, and you get some references, and see particularly what their track record is, you know, how it's gone. But even then, you're going to have a learning experience. Yes, sir. Is, you've heard that joke about, um, you know, how does it go? If... If you're this, God can teach you. If you're this, God can teach you. But if you don't have this, neither man nor God can teach you. Have you ever heard? I haven't heard that. It but makes it's, I could see it's, that it's interesting, but I haven't heard that. Is leadership something you can learn, or is it something that is innate? Yeah. Okay, great question. Can leadership be learned, or is it an innate skill? There's actually a very big argument about that in leadership literature. Some individuals simply feel like, hey, leaders are born leaders, end of story. Anybody can That's fake it. it and make it for a while. <laughs> Anybody can fake it and make it for a while. Uh, I tend to think that leadership is a combination of certain yeah. traits that you are born with, but it's really much more things that you learn as you grow. So um, I think certainly there's a component. Certain personalities have skill sets that maybe give them a kind of a boost, but at the same time, there's a lot of things a leader can learn principle-wise that would make them a good leader. And the reason I say that is many top leaders in the world don't exhibit the charismatic traits that are generally associated with good leadership. They have other traits. They put this fantastic team around them Now that's a learned skill, thinking through, okay, who do I need to do this job? Um, So, but actually it's it's an interesting debate. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.